Hello and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Northern Lights Teaching School Hub podcast, where we discuss all areas of classroom teaching, school leadership and professional development for teachers and leaders at every stage of their career, with a range of guests from schools across our region and beyond. I'm your host, John Tate, so let's find out what we've got lined up for you in today's episode. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing how we can work towards poverty proofing the curriculum in our schools. So I'm delighted to say that alongside me on today's show, we have Sean Harris. Sean is Trust Improvement Lead at Tees Valley Education Trust in Middlesbrough and a part-time doctoral student with Teesside University investigating poverty in schools and how we tackle this in our classrooms. And if that's not enough, he also finds time to write for education publications and is an author in the fields of education, community work and theology. So a warm welcome to the podcast, Sean. It's great to have you with me today discussing something so important in education and something that I know is close to both of our hearts. Thanks, John. It's lovely to, to be on here for, for listeners. Um, I think the fact that we've got listeners tuning in to talk about poverty and disadvantage is brilliant. I appreciate these are complex topics, but I do believe that the more we talk about it uh, and pay our uh, pay our attentive ears to, to really trying to think about getting under the skin of poverty, that's got to be a good thing in education. Absolutely. And I'm sure that everyone listening will be able to take away lots and lots of different kind of pearls of wisdom from this, whether you are a school leader, whether you are a head of department, head of subject, a phase leader, whether you're a classroom teacher, whether you are primary, secondary, uh, special, sixth form, university, whatever it is, I think there's something for everyone in here. Um, so let's get cracking then. Um, first question then, Sean, I'm, sh- I'm sure all of our listeners will be aware of the importance of trying to tackle disadvantage- the disadvantage gap in our schools, but can you start by outlining why this might have got a little bit more difficult since the pandemic and the impact that COVID has subsequently had on poverty and its link to education? Yeah, sure thing, John. So I think it's important to say that poverty is very much on everyone's inboxes at the moment, isn't it? It's on everyone's kind of airwaves. Why? Because since the pandemic, we've really seen that the cost of living crisis, for example, all of the stuff that happened in the pandemic, you know, poverty was there. Poverty was a pandemic before we had things like COVID-19. But what the pandemic did was amplify the impact of that. Research tells us that it was the most disadvantaged that were impacted the most through the pandemic as well. So things, for example, like not having access to good working arrangements at home and not having access to, say, uh, the kind of things that that perhaps more affluent peers might have had. We know that this was the case for children, but also families as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it is also important to say, John, that, you know, any researcher that is telling you right now that we know the full extent of the impact of COVID-19 and the cost of living on those in poverty, that's a bit of a porky pie. Why? Because we're still in it. We do not yet know the longitudinal impact of what we've been through these last few years. But what we do know is that the early research suggests that it was the most marginalised, the most disadvantaged that have been impacted the most. And of course, when we then layer that with what we know in education, we know that there's significant gaps, not only in children's learning and knowledge, um, but also kind of some of that sequencing of learning as well. And we know that we're having to work so much harder in classrooms to tackle and undo some of that. Excellent. And I, and I think that, that that's really important for to remember that, you know, that, that, that it is disadvantaging the most disadvantaged, isn't it? And, and actually, that, that that's really important for us to think about in terms yeah. of what does that mean as a classroom teacher? What does that mean in your in, in your classroom? What are the things that you're seeing that actually that's having you know the, the, the biggest impact on those families? Um, one thing that's interesting, what I want to pick up with you now is that, mm-hmm. and I know you you've, you've kind of worked a lot about this, but whenever you think about educational research, there's always a few misconceptions or myths that tend to float around uh, that often, unfortunately, become perceived reality. 
um, but that are actually just out of line with what with what research actually says. So given your standing in research and what you're doing at the moment and the link to kind of poverty, what have you found then, Sean, in terms of mm. poverty and education that's often talked about and believed by the profession, um, but that's actually not backed up by evidence? Yeah, great, great question. So I, I think you know, poverty is something we're, we're, we're constantly finding out more about. And if there's anything that by way of a positive that might have happened in the last few years, and perhaps positive is too crude a word to use. But one of the things that we found in our trust academies is that because of the cost of living crisis, some of the stigma on poverty and disadvantage has been dialed down a little bit, John. Mm -hmm. So essentially, we've got more uh, parents, families, grandparents coming to us and saying, actually, that poverty thing, I recognize that I've got some of the symptoms of that in my life particularly, for example, some of our single parents that recently came to us and said, in work, poverty is a thing I think I'm struggling with. So actually, we've got this really interesting scenario at the minute. And again, it's not a positive scenario, but an interesting one in that some of the stigma has been dialed down, at least anecdotally in my in my time. So we're finding that we're able to talk about this. But because of that, it's enabling us to perhaps tackle some of the myths that might exist. So if I just take my first myth, for example, <clears throat> One of the ones I regularly hear time and time again in education circles, but particularly from policymakers and thinkers is um, we've just got to raise the aspirations of people in disadvantage. And actually, my challenge to that is, do we? Is it really about aspirations? Do we really take this view that somehow low income equals low aspirations? Where's our evidence base for that? Mm -hmm. Because actually there is there's a plethora of research to show that it rarely is about aspirations, but what it sometimes can be about is a knowledge of what can be accessed in that local area. So job market, uh, industries, uh, a lack of knowledge of perhaps some of the skills or the habits or the tools that we know really support children in the home environment that for whatever reason, families have just not been able to pick up. Now, this idea that low aspiration, you know, I, I often kind of come up with the idea of, do we really think that when a child's born, that a low income family hold that child in their arms and say, I don't aspire for you to be good. That's not my experience, and I don't think research says that either. Interestingly, another myth that we sometimes hear still, sadly, in education circles is that it's all about the pupil premium. It's all about free school meals. Stephen Gorrard and, and others over at Durham University locally to us have done some great work on how, whilst it's a convenient proxy for schools, the pupil premium, if that is your only way of measuring or understanding poverty forensically in your school, then you're really, really missing a trick. Mm. Research we know is a challenge for teachers and leaders, but, but really research is saying you've got to have a broader definition. So what about those children, for example, that might not qualify for FSM or pupil premium, but we know anecdotally from our Intel Inside Academies and schools will be struggling with some form of disadvantage. Mark Rowland uh, comes up with a great slogan that he uses, and he's the, the sort of lead for pupil premium nationally for the research school networks. And Mark says the challenge is for us to be experts in pupils, not the pupil premium. And I think that that's that's really helpful. Be an expert in the pupil, not the pupil premium. That's that's that, that is really interesting, uh, and I think that that that's that's absolutely right. Um, and I think I. We might come back to some more myths, but I think that perfectly links into what I was going to kind of say. So I thought it would be a great segue there, actually. That sure. you know, I, I know, you know, that the, the work you're referring to there in terms of uh, in terms of Durham University and Professor Tim Gorrard, but equally, I know that I've, I've heard you spoke, speak about it quite often as well about reminding people that the pupil premium isn't just a label on a spreadsheet. 
Uh, yeah, actually, sure. it runs far deeper than that. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. So I thought it would be a perfect opportunity for me to ask you, why Why is it then really important for us to truly understand specifically why each student in our class is disadvantaged or classes pupil premium and what that means for you as their teacher rather than just I have three pupil premium students yeah. in my in my class it's about understanding that, yeah. that a lot further mm -hmm. isn't it absolutely it is and, and if I can give another uh, another Mark Rowland quote that I know we found particularly useful as a trust Mark talks about pupils are not at risk of underachievement because of any particular label you know such as pupil premium free school meals mm -hmm. Rather, it's because of the impact of socioeconomic disadvantage on their learning. And I think that's a really important way. Again, you know, we are in the business of learning as leaders and educators, teachers, teaching assistants in, in our schools, John. So therefore, we've got to constantly think, what is the impact on learning? I'm not saying we shouldn't give airtime to thinking about the well-being and the welfare aspects. But again, we're always looking at that through the lens of what is the impact on learning? So really, I, I suppose what, what I would say and what we found useful as a trust, what I often say is kind of research seminars and so on, is a forensic understanding of children and families facing poverty is needed. But you've got to first understand as a, as a school, as a team, well, actually, what are we going to say poverty looks like? What does disadvantage look like in this area? Mm -hmm. So, for example, some of my academies serve the coast. Some of them are sort of town centre Middlesbrough. Well, actually, we know that poverty manifests slightly different in those communities. I'm not saying we should all be policy experts on poverty or go and do a PhD in it. But actually, what does poverty look like and feel like in the context of that community? And I suppose the other bit that's important to remember here as well, and this is, I would say, for early career teachers all the way through to, to senior leaders, the understanding that poverty, the impact of poverty and disadvantage on learning is a process. It's not a one off event. So a long term view, therefore, is needed if we're going to be able to tackle this in schools. It's very rare that you'll get a cohort and go, right, we're going to absolutely extinguish poverty and the impact of poverty for this year group in one year. You've got to take a longer term view of it. But but the other bit I'll just add to, to wrap that part up, John, is that we know that early intervention is needed. Mm -hmm. So the sooner, and that's from a send, a send perspective, that's from a disadvantage perspective, and all those other aspects as well, actually early intervention is really needed so the sooner we get that diagnostic on a child and i'm talking even pre-early years mm -hmm. the better and and getting that clinical makeup and understanding of what's going on in that family to be able to then decide well what are we best placed as a school to help address over time that's really interesting and a couple of things just to pick up there uh there's almost a, a summary really i suppose it's it's really interesting physically, but also geographically, what that disadvantage looks like, isn't it? So physically, so. you know, it, does that child have a flat desk at home? Does that child yeah. have the internet? Does that is that child sharing a bedroom with three other siblings? You know, yes. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Does that child have a hot meal? You know, those type of things actually are very because that doesn't that doesn't that's not on your spreadsheet. That's not that's not there in terms of that child is people premium. So Absolutely. what does that look like physically? And do you know that? And are you therefore understanding the limitations or the barriers to education? But interestingly, you also mentioned geographically the difference between what that might look like in a coastal town compared mm. to what that might look like in the middle of a town centre or a city. And you might have students from both of those areas in the same class that are yeah. in the same, allegedly the same column because they are pupil premium. But what that looks like and feels like to those families and to those students and the barriers that, that, that those things those socioeconomic problems yeah. face uh, and, and provide those children with 
are very, very different. So I, I completely agree. It, it, it's not an easy, yes, they're on my PP register, so therefore I'll ask them a question first for the rest of the class. Well, that's only going, you know, that's only literally the tip of the iceberg. It's what does yeah. it actually mean? And I think that I would employ everyone to then really, to, if it's one thing that you can take away initially from this is, who are your students? What are their disadvantages? You know, what what is that issue? And, and, and finding out about that so that, exactly as you said, you can put the early intervention in place as quick as possible so that we can make a difference rather than it just showing up on a spreadsheet somewhere. So I think that that is you know really, really, really interesting. Absolutely. And just one other part I'd say on that, John, is um, so absolutely like, look beyond the labels. First and foremost, that is the big takeaway there, I think. Yeah. The second bit is the, the bit I often get asked by researchers and, and others once I've kind of done conferences and the like is, can you show me what the, the current statistics are saying on poverty in my area? That's, again, a bit of a lie. There's no such thing as a current statistic because no. we, as a government, for example, we measure this stuff historically, usually the kind of previous financial year. Mm -hmm. So actually, I guess what, what my challenge often is to teachers and leaders is use that data by all means to get a sense check on the trend and okay. what might be happening. But it's actually you guys as researchers in classrooms and corridors and school meeting rooms that have that live research and anecdotally they're the people coming in and out of the school doors and the people you're talking to on telephones that needs to be layered with those statistical stats absolutely and 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 what does it even really mean anyway that you have a school that has 25 percent of people premium students like right, it's a statistic and it's on a spreadsheet and it might rank you above or below the schools but yeah. so what like what does that actually mean in practice and and how is that child in an english classroom facing disadvantage differently or similarly to a, to the to the child next door in a math lesson, you know. So I, I I totally agree, and it isn't an easy job, but it's one that we we should be committed to doing. So um, now that we've kind of like established, I suppose what the problem is, and 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 and, and talked about labels and and not having labels there, um, let's focus then on the curriculum now that we teach, and this is what I really want to kind of you know, delve into here. Um, and this is just as useful if you're a senior leader, head of subject, or a classroom teacher. So. In terms of the curriculum that we teach and we design uh, and that, that's in our classrooms every day, are there ways that without even knowing we're widening the disadvantage gap further by our own design, given that all of our students will arrive in our classrooms with a different level of cultural capital? And again, Sean, that might be very mm -hmm. different depending on you know their, their, uh, their socioeconomic kind of uh, status. Absolutely. Um, so, so in short, yes, there, there is. Uh, we do this all the time. I use the anecdote of once, um, you know, I like to think I bring some poverty expertise to the table. But even I, with the curse of knowledge, um, have total blind spots when it comes to poverty and when it comes to what's happening in classrooms. And I use the example of I'd worked with this group of, of RE teachers and an RE subject leader to redefine a curriculum that was addressing some stereotypes that they knew children had in this particular academy. Um, it was a predominantly white working class uh, community. And they wanted to sort of, I suppose, deal with the elephant in the room that some of the children particularly some of the lads had a view that um you know kind of muslims were somehow to be feared right mm -hmm. and so the first lesson was all around kind of you know what might be the tensions of being a british muslim in the world today and essentially that was the um that was the sort of opening if you if you like sort of inquiry question in in the lesson and this was done with to put it in context a, a sort of upper key stage three early key stage four group of children and we asked the question so what might be the challenges of being a british muslim in the world today and with no malice intended, group of these boys saying, sir, what, what's a British Muslim? I don't understand. There's no such thing. Realised that our absolute ignorance to assume um, that 
children all understood that actually you can have that you know dual heritage if you like of being Britishness and being Muslim we totally overlooked and again it just goes back to this idea of making assumptions about what children know or understand based on their lived experience we're doing this as teachers all the time so let, let's kind of scale that back for a minute um the real positive here is that we know that curriculum is a massive lever for change yeah on even poverty right so whilst we know pupil premium is not effective at fully measuring poverty, we know that attainment at school um, it shows big gaps in terms of uh, more disadvantaged and, and advantaged peers. We know that. There are also some bets that research tells us work when it comes to curriculum. And do I think we're going to eradicate poverty with curriculum? Not at all. But do I think we're going to dilute some of the impact of poverty on learning through our curriculum? Honestly, curriculum is one of our biggest levers and probably our best lever for change. So for example, breaking down curriculum content into a granular level detail, we know that that is gonna help those children in poverty that are not in the sequence of good learning or in the habit of good learning at home. And we know that research backs up that for some children in poverty, John, that is a reality. Mm -hmm. We also know that research says middle leaders and classroom teachers are arguably better placed than us as senior leaders at crafting curriculum. So anyone listening to this as a subject leader or a classroom teacher going, oh, that's just too big for me. I, I sort of leave that to the senior leaders. No, actually research says, you know, we've got Oates 2010, we've got Turner, Robinson and others that say, actually it's you guys as the architects of curriculum that are best placed in schools to have a curriculum that is essentially poverty informed. And I think the other bit I, I would just say on this as well is we know that um, what we sometimes fall into the trap of doing, John, in schools is we go, oh, I've got to rush through this curriculum, all this knowledge rich stuff, or I've got to do that because it's on the spec. What I often say, particularly for a poverty lens to teachers is it would be better for children to be masters in 20% of that curriculum and don't keep going through it if they've not understood it yet. It would be better for them to be masters in 20% than you trying to cover 100% and potentially those children have no idea of what's happening by the end. Or even worse, we've reinforced misconceptions through the curriculum. Absolutely. And, and that, that example you mentioned there uh, about the uh, the RE teachers and, and that kind of misconception about kind of you know, the British Muslims is really interesting, isn't it, in terms of what are, you know, that there's bound to be so many things that actually are in our curriculum or we presume or we assume that students have had prior knowledge, prior experience, um, et cetera. And I know I've, 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 I was going to ask you that if, if you could share some examples. I know you've shared one there, but I, I've kind of yeah. on another one. I, I, I know you mentioned to me previously about kind of, you know, um, a school right near the beach, you know, like the, the yeah. danger of the beach. So if you've got, you know, so I'll let you tell that one. Yeah, let, 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 else let me you've got where other yeah. examples where kind of there's clearly a, a gap there in cultural capital. Mm -hmm. And if we don't understand that there's a gap there, then actually you know, the, the students will be left behind immediately, aren't they? So if you can yeah, tell that story, anything else you've yeah, got. Just, let, let, let me give a couple of examples of where we essentially are blind spots in, in our schools. And, and I suppose what I should just remind listeners here, John, is, you know, the curse of knowledge dictates that we're all guilty of this and yes. we're all susceptible to the curse of knowledge. That idea that the more masterful and expert we'd become in something, it's so much harder to put it across to a novice. And by and large, research is backing up that for some of our children in disadvantage, they are arguably 
more likely to be the novices in our classroom, right? Particularly, for example, when you're throwing the mix of things like exclusions, attendance, and therefore significant gaps in sequences of learning Correct. because of a lack of exposure to school, right? So a couple of examples I use, um, I know my, my own daughters in, in primary school when they came home during the pandemic, um, teachers admittedly uh, and in their defense were having to pull together things at very last minute I appreciate we'd never lived through a pandemic before mm -hmm. but the homework task said something like um, go into your garden and record the different sounds that you can hear from wildlife now in theory that's a great idea isn't it let's get children outside and thinking but actually if you live in a high-rise tower flat yep. you don't have a garden um, or even worse it's a really busy estate so I give an example of a little boy that said to me in an academy not that long ago, what I love about reading at school is I can concentrate because when I try and read at home, the sound of the motorbikes outside of my bedroom window, I just can't concentrate. Now, essentially, John, that was his way of saying, cognitively, I am overloaded. He didn't have yes. that language. Yeah. But what he's saying is, I can't do that at home in a way I can do at school. You make it possible. Another example I use um, with one of our academies near, near Redcar Beach, where again, no malice intended, you know, we, we talked to, to a group of children about what might be the, the challenges of living in a coastal town. A little boy says, well, coconut might fall on your head when you're, when you're under a palm tree. He clearly has a mental model of coast. And it, let's be honest, it's probably based on a cartoon where yeah. there is the stereotypical palm tree and a coconut. That assumption that because he lives a mile and a half from the beach, he goes to the beach every weekend total misconception for us as teachers so therefore do we need to then spend longer on the mental model of beach and what it means to be part of the coast and the fact that not all coasts have palm trees yes absolutely we can't make the assumption that just because we think it's near them or in their world it definitely is or it's secure knowledge and and thank you for sharing those sean because those are really really powerful uh, examples uh, and images that I immediately, uh, especially you know the one where you'd said about kind of going home and what's in the garden, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and actually, mm -hmm. again, very well intentioned, you know. But actually, that teacher or school or resource that they've grabbed it from the shelf from haven't stopped to really think and process: Am I excluding twenty five, thirty, fifty percent of my class here yeah. because actually they can't achieve this and they can't do this? Um, without even thinking that because you know no, nobody ever ever would set out to intentionally disadvantage their students but actually okay. we need to I suppose your message there is stop think uh, and actually evaluate it so so moving on to that then uh, mm. I, I presume you know many of our listeners now might be having some light bulb moments and thinking oh hang on a second you know what have I done previously or what's in my curriculum and are, are there any things in the next few lessons that I'm teaching that might be posing that kind of that problem so um you know, they, they might not have been conscious of that, um, mm. that the, 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 the curriculum that they're building and designing and implementing is a barrier for some of the students due to that lack of cultural capital. So how should school leaders, uh, and I, when I say school leaders, I really mean anyone from anyone in, responsible, as you've said, really, whether it's a, a teacher in charge of their curriculum, whether it's somebody in charge of their own curriculum that they are teaching, whether it's a head of department, head of year, sc you know, so, a school kind of head teacher, et cetera. How can those leaders go about reviewing their curriculum to check that it's poverty proofed? Have you got any kind of ideas yeah. or kind of structures that actually they can, rather than just, oh, what am I doing tomorrow? Is it Does it pass the test? A bit wider than that, how can they do that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I should stress here, John, is if anyone's listening, thinking, oh, goodness, I haven't thought about this stuff before. Welcome to the club. That's all of us. I do a PhD in poverty and I regularly fall foul on this stuff. So please do not think that um, that you're alone in that. Um, the very fact that we're listening, we're talking about this topic mm. for me in schools is, is brilliant. Um, and actually, just to, again, another sort of myth that comes up is that somehow curriculum is done. It's a bit like the, the teacher that says, um, I'm up to date with my marking. It's nonsense. We're never up to date. We're never up to date. Curriculum is never done. Mm -hmm. So the very fact that you are regularly reviewing it and something that should be happening is good news for disadvantaged children. Okay. The other bit I will just caveat in terms of what I'm about to say is there are no silver bullets. So there is no off the shelf toolkit that's going to go. And that there you go. Now you've poverty informed your <laughs> curriculum. It's fully poverty proof. That's not going to happen. Why? Because we know we've talked about already the bespoke needs of your children year on year, cohort to cohort are going to look different. But research dictates that there are some good bets that we can apply to curriculum, which are going to help us on this journey. Let's just take a sort of big helicopter view of curriculum first. First things first, I would hope that all schools have mapped the knowledge that they want. But in that knowledge, is it really clear the concepts that we're trying to teach? Is it really clear that the sort of what I refer to as the subdomains of knowledge? In other words, the granular bits of knowledge that you really want children to go and understand. If that's not mapped, if that's not clear, it's really hard then to do the next bit. And the next bit essentially is... I'll often encourage my teachers to, to do what's called a pre-mortem. So that could be done pre-lesson to lesson, but take it as a whole piece of curriculum as well. Now, pre-mortem involves us going and thinking about that most disadvantaged child in our lesson. And we can all picture that child right now. That person that we know might be FSM, might be pupil premium, might be beyond those labels as we've discussed. But out of that knowledge that you've mapped and put on that pre-mortem, what parts of that do we think that said child or said children are going to struggle with most and literally like red pen it you know highlight it mm -hmm. if they're the bits that we're saying those children are going to struggle with most well here's an idea we're probably going to need to give that more airtime before we go into any further knowledge on that curriculum in fact we know and carpick and others and other researchers talk about you're going to have to over expose children to the point that they're going hang on a minute we learned about this last week yeah we did and i'm not going to apologize for it because i really want it in your long-term memory so there's that bit the the other bit that we've started to do and we've done this with uh in collaboration with shine because we've had some funding to roll out some research into this is actually working with children themselves john and co-production and and essentially sense checking with them what they already know about that knowledge now the way we've done that is we've we've sort of organized some informal groups of children we've gotten together and said so that's the knowledge we're going to be looking at in a few weeks time what do some of your friends who might not have as much as you already know about those topics? Now, the reason we're doing that is because we're being sensitive. We don't want to get them in a room and go, so we've recognized that all you kids are in poverty. Like, please, no, listener, go and do that. But actually involving children in that process, and that can be in a lesson. It doesn't have to be at a lesson and actually sense checking with them and saying, so just going to put a picture there of something that we're going to be looking at next term or going to put some words from my uh, curriculum overview or whatever we're calling it uh, that we're going to be looking at next term. I believe this could be something that happens in secondary and primary because I've used it in both. What do you already know about it? Now, that's really interesting because what you'll find is some quite significant misconceptions will come to the surface. And then teachers will say to me, well, I can't deal with all those misconceptions. No, of course you can't. 
But what would you say are the two to three top misconceptions that unless you deal with, probably are going to disable that child from being able to access the rest of that curriculum over the next few weeks? So pick your top two, pick your top three and really home in on addressing those misconceptions. That's 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 really interesting because I completely get that kind of response of how am I supposed to address all these misconceptions? But the comeback is then, well, well, if you don't, there's no point teaching it. Like, that, that, you're wasting sure. your time anyway because some of those kids are therefore not going to get it. Yes. So or you, you may as well just not bother doing it. So I, I think that's a really useful tool like that. And I've heard that term pre-mortal quite a few times in terms of mm-hmm. even like leadership projects, you know, kind of in terms of what could go wrong, therefore... Yeah. What do we need to do right now? What are, what are all the things we need to put in place to ensure that the best we can? Granted, yeah. you know we, we can't kind of cover everything, but what are the what are the key things that we can do to make sure this is success, successful? And that is just as useful planning a, a lesson, a, a topic, a, a curriculum as it is for leading a project across a whole school. So I think that is really really useful. Um, the other thing that it does is it, uh, that from what I what I'd read previously about pre is it gives people the opportunity and the license to be negative almost and to say, I have no idea about this or that's not going to work. Whereas sometimes once you get into it, people are often kind of, you know, not they don't want to do that, but you're giving people the license to say, it's okay to say this right now because yeah. you know, it, it's a it's a test phase, I suppose, isn't it? It's a kind of, so I, that is really useful for adults and children alike. So, yeah. And, and I guess the only other thing I would find to the mix there is, Doing that in collaboration with colleagues, John, is really helpful. And, and there's two reasons for that. One is you're then not owning that information yourself. You can sense check it. Actually, is this tallying with what other people are finding in their lessons and subjects? Because that can be a really useful exercise. But the other reason I, I flag it as well is let's not assume that every colleague understands poverty in the way that we do. And the reason I'm saying that is because we know that um, uh, COVID, the cost of living has exasperated poverty for many. For some of our low income staff members, that might even be making them experience disadvantage. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing there is cleverly drawing in some of that intel from those that might live in the area and have a bit more of a sort of road tested, like actual lens on what's happening in the community. But the other reason as well is for those teachers, adults who have only ever lived in affluence, and there will be some in our schools, that's not a bad thing. But we know we're probably going to have to work that bit harder with those staff members at getting them to see the misconceptions and the misunderstandings that exist because a child has low income experience. I really like that, John. And, I, and thanks for adding that, because I think it is really useful to do that um, from a staff point of view. And um, yeah, I, I just think everything you've mentioned there has, has has come together there in terms of what does it look like? What might it look like? How, how do we make sure we don't just use the labels and we look at our spreadsheet? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Uh, what are the barriers? What are the things that we're already putting in the, in the way? And then ultimately, how can we kind of then start to evaluate our own curriculums to look at kind of with staff, with pupils, where are the barriers? What are the misconceptions that might come about so that we're doing everything we can that when we actually open up our open up our lesson and deliver it, that we've done everything we can to hopefully make sure that we aren't just creating more barriers because the more barriers we, we put in place, then the worse this is going to get. So yeah, that's been a been a fantastic kind of 30 minutes or so, Sean. So I, I really Great. appreciate it. And hopefully our listeners, it whatever age phase or stage they're at, they, they can take lots of things from that. Um, if people are really interested in your work, Sean, and want to find more about you or connect with you, I know you 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 uh, you do some fantastic kind of research newsletters and that kind of stuff. How would they how would they go about finding you? 
Yeah, sure thing, John. Yeah. Um, selfish plug for more followers on the likes of Instagram and, and X, formerly known as Twitter. You can find me on, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Sean Harris underscore NE, as in Northeast. Um, I'm, I'm often on there sort of putting out kind of bits of research and, and other bits and, and sharing good practice from other schools nationally. On Instagram, I'm at that poverty guy. So would love to hear from others. Even if you've got questions, I, I, I love talking about this stuff. I'm a bit odd like that. So please do get in touch. Um, and John, I'm sure you can uh, circulate my email address. We do a, a weekly roundup of research, really focused on the poverty agenda, but kind of pedagogy curriculum and other, other bits too. That's totally free. So it'd be great to have that going into more inboxes because then that leads to more people talking about this important agenda in schools. Absolutely. Thank you, Sean. I'm sure if anybody connects with you on social media and, and sends you a message with their email address, you'd better add them to that kind of pretty quickly anyway. So that, that that's brilliant. Well, listen, thank you once again uh, for your time this morning, Sean. It's always a pleasure talking to you about this. I know it's 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 something close to, to both of our hearts, you know, from from being free school meal kids, you know, kind of our, our ourself uh, in the in, in our past. So it is something that, that that's really, really important to us. Um and yeah, just thanks for taking the time. Thanks for taking the time and for sharing those those examples with our listeners. And um yeah, I'm sure everyone can uh, can take a lot from it. So thank you very much, mate. Thanks, John. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for listening to the Northern Lights Teacher School Hub podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to some more fantastic guests. But in the meantime, if you want to know more about the support, services and courses that Northern Lights Teacher School Hub offers, head over to northernlights.education and click on the Teaching School Hub tile. Until then, take care.